Last week I mentioned that I believe that Romans 4, 5, the statement that is made here, is one of the most startling statements in all the Word of God. It's startling, but at the same time, it is wonderful. It is a wonderful statement. And in Romans 4, 5, Paul says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him, and here's the statement, who justifies, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. This is a startling statement that God would justify not those who are righteous, but those who are ungodly. And we looked at this last week. And we appreciate this, come to appreciate it when we come to understand what the scripture says about all of us, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. That if God were to give to me what I deserve, it would be the judgment of God and the wrath of God for all eternity. And yet here is the statement that in the gospel that God justifies, and that's a legal term. It's a legal term whereby someone is accepted before the court He justifies the ungodly. To be justified is the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation means there's judgment. When we hear the word justified, it means to be acquitted, no charges brought against someone. How does God do this? I've told this story before of Mr. McCoy. He was a chicken thief, lived in the backwoods, and he was stealing all his neighbor's chickens. Finally, he was arrested, he was brought to trial, and As he was going through this trial, he had a court-appointed attorney for him. He couldn't afford one, and this attorney was pretty good and made a pretty good case for him. And uh, the prosecution made their case, and then finally the jury came back with the verdict, handed it to the judge, and the judge asked Mr. McCoy to stand up, and he would read the results of it. And he said, Mr. McCoy... You have been acquitted of all charges. And he kind of stood there with a dumb look on his face, and he said, Sorry, Judge, but what does that big word, acquitted, mean? He said, Well, that means that there are no charges that are brought against you. Uh, you're acquitted. You're, forgive, you're, you're, you're free to go. Um, and you're justified in the sight of the court. And then he said to the judge, I just have one more question. He said, does that mean I have to give back the chickens? (laughs) Now, sometimes people, when they think about God justifying the ungodly, that's kind of what he does, that he he just forgives them and sweeps their carpet, uh, sweeps their sin under the carpet. Kind of like this guy, that he gets off the hook, but justice kind of has fallen in the streets. And that's not what happens when God justifies the ungodly. We saw this last week, that when God justifies the ungodly, it is because of what Christ has done, that he himself has borne the penalty that was due to the sinner, and he has borne it in full, and God is therefore just to forgive the sinner. And this is why the gospel is such wonderful, good news that Jesus Christ died in a way in which he made 
salvation possible for sinners. He made a ransom. He provided a propitiation. He brought about a reconciliation through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We have been considering these for the last several weeks as we've been talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the work of of Christ, God can remain just and be the justifier of sinners, of the ungodly. Now, the question that we want to address today, and this is kind of, this is what Christ has done for sinners, but we want to consider on the human side, how is such a verdict received? This is the all-important question that is being addressed here. How is the verdict of justification conferred upon the ungodly sinner? How does an ungodly sinner receive this verdict not guilty, no condemnation, you have been acquitted, you are accepted before the court of heaven? How are we justified in the, state, uh, in the sight of God? And how are, we might say, how are we saved? That really is the whole sum- summary of the book of Romans. How is, it a, how is a sinner made right in the eyes of a holy and just God? How do we receive that? How are we justified before God? And this really is, this is a weighty truth. This is of ultimate importance And today we're looking at the gospel now in in terms personally. What does that mean for me? How can I know that I am right in the eyes of a holy and a righteous God? How is this verdict conferred upon the ungodly sinner? One would consider, first of all, the immediate and the broader context of Romans 4, 5. And we talked about this last week. And right here in this verse... What does Paul say? Verse 5. But to him who does not what? He does not what? Work. He does not work, but he believes on him, that is God, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Negatively, it's not because of something that he has done or she has done. It's not based upon religious activities or ceremonies or trying to live a good life, that they receive this verdict. But it is by faith. It is believing in this God who has sent his own son into the world to provide salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. And back in chapter 3, Paul again makes this very clear. Again, we talked about this last week. Verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. All right? No flesh will be justified in his sight trying to keep the law, trying to do something, trying to earn the favor of God. For by the law is the knowledge, not that you're righteous, but that you're a sinner. The law is always going to expose you as guilty before a holy and a righteous God. And so Paul goes on in these next few verses to speak about a righteousness that is provided by God in the gospel through Jesus Christ. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who and on all who believe, for there is no distinction. 
Um, Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. It is through faith. Faith is the empty hand of a beggar reaching out and receiving the gift of a king. Trusting and relying upon this provision that God himself has made in his own dear beloved son who died for sinners. And so Paul emphasizes over and over again in the book of of Romans here that it's by faith. It is by faith, receiving and trusting in this one that God has provided. And therefore, in verse 27, where is boasting then? If we're saved through faith and not by our works, is there room for boasting? Well, he says it's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. There it is again. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And so it is not by works of righteousness. It's not by baptism or circumcision or keeping the law. It is by faith. And again, Paul goes to great ends to make that point. And then as we get into chapter 4, he begins to talk about Abraham. He was an Old Testament character, lived 2,000 years before Christ. How is he justified? Because Paul brings him up as an example of one who was justified by faith alone. He wasn't justified because he did certain things. In fact, Abraham was an idolater. He worshipped foreign gods, these... uh, Idols made with men's hands. God called him. God came to him and graced him and called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and made to him some amazing promises. I'm going to make of you a great nation. From you will come one that will bring blessing to all the earth. And it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He believed in the promise of God what he had said, what he had promised that he would do. And even though he and his wife were elderly and beyond the years of bearing children, he believed God. He rested and trusted in the promise that God had made to him. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was accepted by God because he believed in his promise. And so Paul goes on to make the case that this is exactly how everyone is saved. Old Testament uh, saints were not saved by keeping the Old Testament law, and Jesus came just to make it easier for us so that we don't have to work. That's the way some people think. It has never been that way. It has always been by faith in the promises of God and uh, trusting in his word and his redeemer, his promises. And so... The rest of the New Testament concurs. This is, this is the case. John 3.16, a verse we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What's the next line? That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He believes in him. He believes in the son. He believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, the next chapter Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Josh read for us those wonderful verses from Ephesians 2. 
For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we, by faith, have put our trust, if we're a believer, we put our trust completely and fully in Jesus Christ. So how does God justify ungodly sinners? Because they put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk just a little bit about the nature of saving faith. Um, R.C. Sproul, in his book on theology, talks about faith comprising three components. The first is information. Saving faith involves content. There are things that are believed. There are things that are believed. Faith is not just a leap into the dark, just have faith. You know, you hear people say things like that. Just, just believe. No matter what you believe, just be sincere about it and have faith. Well, in the Bible, the Bible speaks about not a leap into the dark, but really a leap into the light. There are things that we know that have been revealed to us in the word of God. And so there is content to the scripture. There is content to what we believe. Um, so having faith is biblically, it's not just being gullible or mystical. It is believing in things that God has revealed in his word through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there is content. All right. There are things that we know that have been revealed. Um, and as we think about that, when we think about the gospel, there are things that are perplexing, things that are hard to understand, but there is also a simplicity about it. There's a simplicity that we can understand these historic redemptive events that God became a man. That's a mystery, but this is historically what the Bible says, that God became a man. The second person of the Godhead became a man, was born of the Virgin Mary that he lived a holy life, a sinless life, that he died, he was buried, he was raised again. Those are things that even a child can understand, historic redemptive events. So even though there is great perplexity in some of these things, there is a simplicity. And so even little children can understand, and Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. So there's information, there's content, Secondly, there is intellectual assent. These are not just facts that we understand when we talk about saving faith, but there's this idea of assenting to it, that we believe these things, that they are true. So it's not just reading a theology book and reading about Jesus and his birth and his life and his death and saying, okay, yeah, that may be true. No, it's assenting and it's affirming that these indeed are true. That's a part of saving faith. And therefore, this is the work of the Spirit. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will take the things that I have spoken unto you, and he will glorify me. And what the Spirit of God does is he gives us understanding to see these truths as vitally important. And we have come under the conviction that they indeed are true. It's not just some, something written in a book, but I assent to this. I believe this. 
I believe what the Bible says about God, that he's holy and just and he must judge sin. I believe what it says about me, that I am a sinner and, and I can't save myself and I deserve the wrath and the punishment of God. And I believe what it says about Jesus Christ, that he is a savior who is sufficient to save the worst of sinners. And therefore, there is this assent, there is this conviction that these things are true, and I'm convinced of this. And the third element of this, of saving faith, is not just that there is this content that is known and that there is an assent that this is true, but there is this personal faith or personal trust. I am trusting, I am trusting in Jesus Christ. I am putting the full weight of my soul upon him to save me from my sins. And so there's this idea of trust, reliance. I remember as a kid hearing stories about this man that could walk on a tightrope and he would walk all, 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 all the way across Niagara Falls. And using that as an illustration of faith. And here is this guy that walks across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. He does all kinds of things. And then he gets a wheelbarrow and he takes it across on the, the tightrope. And then the question is, he asks, who would trust me and would get into the wheelbarrow and let me push them across Niagara Falls? All this is where trust comes to, to bear really putting your confidence in him. You might think, yeah, he could do that, but am I willing to get into the wheelbarrow? And uh, so there is this personal trust, putting the full weight of my soul, my immortal soul, upon him, upon Jesus Christ, and trusting in him. When I was young, I remember someone used the anachronism for faith. It's Forsaking all, I trust him. Forsaking all else, I put all of my trust in Jesus Christ. A personal trust in him. Now, faith does not save us. Mere faith does not save us. It is Christ who saves us. But it is faith that is the instrumental cause by which we lay hold of Christ. And we call upon him to save us from our sins. And we also need to point out that faith is conjoined in the Bible with repentance. Mark 1.15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Acts 17, God commands all men everywhere to repent, for he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he's raised from the dead. And so repentance is one side of faith. It's like, one, it's like a coin, and there are two sides to the coin. Repentance, there's a turning away from sin and faith. There is a trusting in Jesus Christ. Sometimes the New Testament talks about repent and you will be saved. Sometimes it talks about believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Sometimes they go together. Paul went and preached repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What does it mean to repent? The word repent means to have a change of mind, a change of direction. It's to do an about face, to change our mind about who God is, that he is holy and righteous and just. Have a change of mind about ourselves. I am a sinner. I have violated the the law of God. R.C. Sproul talks about our sins that sometimes we think might be minor, but he says it's cosmic treason when we sin against the God who made us. It's cosmic treason, and, and we come to understand that. And there's the call to repent and to turn away from our sin and then to turn to Christ. So repentance we might think of in a negative sense, turning away from sin. In a positive sense, trusting in Christ, turning from sin, turning to Christ, and putting all of our trust in him and in him alone. Paul, speaking of the Thessalonian believers, says, as he wrote to that church, as you embrace the gospel, you turn to God from your idols to serve the living and the true God. And so here is, here is saving faith. It is trusting in Christ and in Christ alone, relying upon him, who he is and what he has done, turning from our sin, bowing the knee, and receiving him for who he is. I think it's important that we see also that saving faith has no supplements. There's not something that we need to add to Christ, something of our own doing. That's why we often say, and that's why we have the banner on the back wall, that we are saved by faith alone. It's not faith plus something that we add, but it is by faith alone, trusting in Christ alone for everything. Frederick Nietzsche said that Christianity is a crutch. Well, he was far from the truth. It's far more than a crutch. We need more than just a crutch. Everything we need, only Christ can provide. He is the Savior who is the all-sufficient Savior. We need a lot more than a crutch. And Jesus Christ provides everything that a sinner, an ungodly sinner, needs. And so it's not Christ plus anything. It's Christ plus nothing equals salvation, trusting in him alone. Galatians 2, 16, Paul makes it so very clear. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. We have some wonderful biblical examples of this, and we're not going to spend much time on this. Think of a dying thief on the cross next to Jesus. And he turns to Jesus, and he says to him, he's come to understand something about who he is, that he's some kind of a king. We don't know how much this man knew, but he turned to this dying man next to him on the cross. And he simply said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I always love what Mark Webb said. 
Jesus, you might think, would say, what in the world would I want somebody like you in my kingdom? What what makes you think I would want somebody like you in my kingdom? But he simply turns to Christ and says, remember me. And Jesus says to this man, who has nothing going for him, nothing to offer, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Look to the lamb. Look to the one who died on the cross for sinners. We'll drop to the last one, the fearful jailer. Remember Paul, Silas, they're singing in prison. They're in chains. And there's an earthquake. Their chains are loosed. The jailer thinks everybody's escaped. He's about to take his life. And Paul says, spare yourself. We're still here. And the man says to Paul, very simply, what must I do to be saved? And his response simply is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's the glory and the beauty of the gospel. I want to ask you today, have you come to that point in your life where you personally have turned and put your trust in this one, Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, where you've owned up to your sin? And you know that your sin will send you to an eternal hell and you've turned from it and you put your trust in him alone. If not, today is a day of salvation. May you call upon him. May you put your trust in this one who came into the world to save sinners. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you today.